The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world. And with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Carol Sanford, and we'll be discussing the responsible business, a vehicle for changing the world. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Carol. She believes, as I do, that we all want to create a better world, and she believes that business can and will play a major role in accomplishing that. So to that end, Carol has been leading major consulting change efforts in Fortune 500 and new economy businesses for over 30 years. She's the author of eight books, her 2011 book, The Responsible Business, Reimagining Sustainability and Success, won the 800 CEO Read Award, and a CNBC Top 12 for 2011 Business Book Award and also the USA International Book winner for general business. And her latest book, The Responsible Entrepreneur, Four Game-Changing Archetypes for Founders, Leaders, and Impact Investors, also won the 800 CEO Read Award, as well as USA International Book Award winner for Entrepreneurship and Small Business. These books are required reading at leading business schools, including Harvard, Harvard, Stanford, Haas, Berkeley, and MIT. Her client list includes long-term relationships with Colgate Europe and Africa and DuPont Canada, USA, Asia, and Europe. And she also works with new economy companies like Intel, Agilent, and leaders of corporate responsibility, such as Seventh Generation. So, Carol, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, my pleasure. So, when you work with your clients, they publish a revenue growth of 30 to 65% a year during your work, and sometimes over decades they've reached a 60 to 70% market share. So, what is it about your approach that produces revenue and market domination? What I am is a very untraditional consultant. I do education because most of what causes us to uh, fall short on what is truly possible is how we think about it. So an example of what I mean by that is people ca- count or m- do metrics 
on things that are about the company and not on their client. So with DuPont Corporation, for example, we shifted significantly their fibers business that went into airbags by starting to measure the uh, things that the persons, the companies that made the airbags measured, like how strong the web was, uh, what the mm. web breaks were. Then you can back that up into how it is that DuPont in the making of the yarn, what it has to do. And we built champions to produce those kinds of returns. What we were able to do then in the uh, uh, the airbag business was make DuPont's fiber the only one that people would accept. I mean, people would hold and wait off wait on orders in order to get them. When in seventh generation, what we were able to do is create products that were so unique and distinctive to specific markets, what I call the essence of each buyer node. When you do that kind of work, you really become very non-displaceable with them because you're making something that works for, uh, like, particularly in their case, what drove their margins. And Jeffrey Hollander, the founder and CEO at that time, published this 30 to 65% in revenue growth every year that happened. And what he said, it was getting to know the consumer really, really well and knowing who seventh generation was, which is kind of the third factor. You be authentically you doing what you do and you will grow significantly your revenues. That margins business of getting up to, and Kingsford Charcoal is one example, which is in the last book, The Responsible Business. They were an industry which was a commodity business, which usually means you have margins that run, you know, three, four, five percent, and you're selling into a retail market, and it's really, really hard. What we did with Kingsford is redefined what the barbecue experience was really about, and it was really about a macho man being able to stand at a grill and deliver exactly what had been ordered. <laughs> And we did that. When you do that, you end up owning the market, and you have a proprietary technology, which no one knows how to do, and it will provide you all of the income. Now, I have to add one thing here, Olivia, because all of these revenue growth, market share, and I don't count market share a lot, but it, it, it is something that my clients count, but margins all come with the um, caveat of doing this more responsibly so that all the stakeholders get healthier. So this is not a greed taking from everyone. This is the responsible business doing this. So there's an overview of why. Wow. So it sounds like you're saying there isn't scarcity that I have to make it at the expense of my supplier or my customer, but I can create a model that everybody gains and then it just grows for everyone? Is that kind of... Oh, absolutely. And in fact, the only way you can really get the kind of numbers that I'm talking about is you shift to thinking of everyone in your supply system as a co-creator. So you think about what this customer has got to have, like uh, seventh generation work with Babies R Us, with diapers and with all of their baby care products to make them so that they were truly sustainable and they were actually good for the baby's butt. You know, they didn't give rashes (laughs) and so forth. In order to do that, they had to work very strongly with contract manufacturers all the way back into the fluff pulp industry. And what they did is help them get excited about the baby and to get excited about what Babies or Us was going to be able to do and eventually Target and many other stores. The shift comes when you understand that if they feel they are in it with you and they get to be creative and innovative with you and they understand the deliverable, not just the number, get it here on time or, you know, we find another supplier – If you are all part of the co-creative process, 
it changes that relationship. Same thing is true with communities and with the people who work in the company. And the people who work inside the company are part of the co-creation, and that's a longer process to explain. But the, the point of it is that they each become tied to specific customers and consumers. Like I said with DuPont, everyone inside of DuPont was on a team, including if you were an administrative assistant, you were on a team for the success of the, the converter and then the deliverer of the automobile with the airbag. You knew what was going on. You were helping make sure it happened inside of your business. That is a different kind of stakeholder relationship where they're a part of the team producing the results, and it drives the results through the roof. So absolutely, the only way you do what I'm talking about is to get no trade-offs, I call it. Everybody uh, improves their vitality, their viability, you know, and able to do great in business. And it must make the employees a lot more satisfied because they get to show up creatively as well as, um, you know, by working hard, right? Oh, hey, they, we moved to pretty much zero turnover except for, you know, retirements. Give you one great story people here may can relate to. A caterer here in uh, Seattle where I live was a fairly small caterer when he just started in a program I was running at a local university here for people who couldn't bring me in, you know, at the, at the big level. And he had just left Marriott as a caterer, and he'd never been very happy working with them inside the business. So he created something called Urban Feast. He had huge turnover. He'd be trying to wait tables, trying to staff a wedding, trying to staff a corporate event, and he couldn't, you know, get people to stay. So when we started really looking at what it was that was unique about he was what he was doing and connecting every person who was going to be serving a table, helping set up for the wedding with the story that they wanted to be able to tell after the wedding, his mm. turnover rate dropped to virtually, I was close to 1%, which is just unheard of in his industry. He wins all the number one awards for the best caterer, the best venue, uh, the best, I um, can't even remember the list of things that's true. He has two venues now. He works with the uh, farmers, making sure that everything, the people who are in the wedding or the corporate event actually know where the produce came from. He has his own farms, his own flower farms. All of that came from understanding that if you get everybody connected, they will help you invent those ideas. So most of the things I'm talking about, BJ, did, the owner, didn't go off and do by himself. He did it by challenging people to figure out how they could make a difference in a wedding or a set of weddings or corporate events. That makes people never want to leave you, but beyond Mm -hmm. that, it makes them want to figure out how to serve the market, the customers, the users that you're serving. That must just make even the community happier, right? Because they're probably going home at night as happier employees and and it's spilling over everywhere. It does. And uh, with DuPont, I worked with them in the mining business for years and Tiao too. And one of the things that they were up against were several lawsuits at the, this was quite a long time ago, but changing it so the employees were connected and they committed to do a proprietary technology, which of course gave them a whole leg up on earnings margins and cash flow, but it also gave them a creative space to become much more sustainable, which meant they had had fewer impacts on the local community. The people who were working there got physically healthier as well as wealthier in the community. And so the communities become happy directly from the activities if you're working this way as a responsible business. 
and they get happier indirectly because of the people who go home. Plus, the responsible business really works with governance in a way that it builds capacity of leaders to be respected. You know how many businesses uh, work in a way that they tend to undermine local leaders and try and override mm-hmm. them. The stories I tell in this book and the clients I've worked with for years switch to that it's their job to help build strong leadership. And it's not about taking a position politically. It's like asking the question, what does it take to have strong, clear leadership that represents, or maybe I should say reflects, what a community is really about? Um, those, those things change how people relate to communities, too. Boy, it'd be nice if we could get this in our government. <laughs> yeah, I don't work with government. If you're always saying that to me, I, I, I know thought... how I can leverage all of this. I do help change government, but not directly by working with government. One of the stories in my brand new book is how Larry Page has made two major shifts in governance. So I say don't work with government, work government, work with governance. And governance mm-hmm. means how we govern, which often is regulation and courts. So, for example, Larry Page, when they went public, normally what happens is that they're regulated by the SEC in a way that it's so complicated that they go through the few channels like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, who can take them public. And Larry Page said, you know, I want to democratize the idea of people being able to own stock. And everybody told him it was nuts. They said, you know, you won't get as much money. Well, they publicized what they wanted was people coming in and bidding. It's called a Dutch auction. And what they Mm -hmm. do is they bid at a point, then when the buying for the stock as it's gone public hits that point, those people actually get to own stock. So he changed how regulation could be used, and he did a similar thing with the FCC and how the analog bands were going to be distributed and made it possible mm-hmm. for us to own our phone numbers because he got the government, the regulators who were going to pass it uh, out the, those channels to keep one-third of them public so that they weren't all owned by the the conglomerate of um, channels that would hold it. So you can have amazing, focused, targeted changes that will actually shift governance. And my new book has got a couple more stories about what's going on with people changing governance. Again, (sighs) government's pretty hard to go after directly. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Um, In your bio... I think it's in one of your bios around your book, it says, you say it will be more than just a responsibility program. Responsibility will be how everything is done in the DNA, so to speak, of the business, and everyone will participate to make a difference. And I think yeah. you touched a little bit on this, but, but what do you mean by that, especially the yeah, DNA? So- um, I am a bit of a, well, no, I'm a lot of a contrarian. I am an optimistic <laughs> contrarian, but I'm very contrarian, as you can hear. And one of the things that I find most disconcerting, I've been doing this work, even though your bio, and it was probably true at one point, I've been in this business 38 years. So I've seen a lot. I've worked all over the world. I've worked with, I've worked with Fortune 500 companies when they have radically changed who they are, you know, from mm-hmm. uh, the modern ones. And one of the things that I really notice is that there was a movement suddenly about 15 years ago to because people were in businesses were not being quote responsible they were being irresponsible so a whole venue of titles and jobs and programs got created all about sustainability and responsibility and corporate citizenship and what I've watched that do is pull out of it's fragmented so that 
what you have now are a group of people who are working on standards, best practices, all of those kind of things I don't even believe exist for what sustainability would mean. And then you have the rest of the corporation going on through the day doing its work. So you have a group doing philanthropy, a group doing corporate citizenship, and a group working on supply chain and making some changes there. But you don't have it as the ethic, the philosophical foundation or the base of how business runs. And when I work with a company, I never talk about sustainability. I actually think the concept is wrong, <laughs> not mm-hmm. in its intention, but in the way it gets administered. So I work with them to think systemically. How is it when you think about the effect on a broader world, which you know you're having, how can you think about that while you're making the decision and have all the decision makers have that embedded all the way to the shop floor or the office floor or the tech floor, as well as the board of directors? So I don't want it fragmented. I don't want it pulled out. I don't want it made it separate. I want it just embedded. So DNA is a word I use sometimes to say, yep, it just kind of grows with it. Oh, that's really powerful. And I've heard, had other guests that have talked about how the millennials and the Gen Yers and the younger, just in general, younger adults uh, are patronizing more sustainable companies. They want to know where their products are created, if they're polluting the environment, if people are paying uh-huh. a fair wage. Are you seeing this also, that companies oh, yes. are recognizing that yeah absolutely in fact i am thrilled (laughs) um (laughs) and there's you know beginning to be a little research about why but and i'm not good at tracking these studies and numbers but yesterday i was in a conversation uh with a not-for-profit foundation which uh does a bit of this tracking and they said the surveys that they're doing are showing that the millennial generation up to about 34 35 years old are are saying they will not work for a company which isn't working in a responsible way. They will not buy from a company, and that's getting close to 70% of people. Now, part of it is knowing what's going on so they can make those choices. But Mm -hmm. I also see people complaining about the millennials. They won't do what they're told, and I'm thrilled (laughs) they won't do what they're told. They ask questions. They push back. It's a whole generation of contrarians. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And, you know, they flock to me. I run entrepreneurial programs where in several cities around the country and used to be around the world, but now in the States, that I bring them together once a month to help them think about their businesses, learn from each other. And one of the things that I see is that they they love trying to figure out how to really create an event and do something in a meaningful way. Uh, Mm. And they're all millennials who show up for those events. It's a little yeah. bit surprising. I don't think thing you, with impact the word investors. Me- the, yeah. The Go ahead. Investors doing the same thing, I was going to say. Not just the entrepreneur, not just the looking for a job, but people who are investing their money when they're young. We're about to have a massive wealth transfer in the next 10 to 12 years. That's going to change completely how money gets spent and invested and in business and infrastructure and everything else. Well, it might be just in time <laughs> to kind be. of <laughs> reverse what's going on. And I love the fact that you mentioned the word meaning, because I think that is sort of a key word in that in that generation and for probably some of us that are a little bit older, uh, uh-huh. but pr- probably fewer in our age group, is that we want things to have meaning. And, um, right. you know, I think that, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think of it as sort of a spiritual value, but that we can we oh, care about the planet and, and other people. Go ahead. Well, you care about life. 
and know that life doesn't thrive, whether it's humans or non-human life, if we don't have caring. And one of my concerns now is we spend a lot of time counting things, which tends to undermine caring. So if you just think about you and your life partner, and if you're counting how many times they say, I love you, or how many times they kiss you, or what kind of, you know, whether they gave you a gift you wanted, you completely lose the, the relationship that you have. When you notice the small things they do, and you watch how the caring gets transmitted, this, you get a really, well, as you said, meaningful and hopeful and built relationship. It turns out that translates exactly to a company and its customer. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, so I was, I'd love to know how you get everybody in the organization, including the senior team and all the lines of business and everyone to embrace this and and maybe if you could give some examples and then maybe some examples of companies that just couldn't quite do it or, or that they just were unwilling to make the changes that you require. Well, first, every company I work with is by referral and all of the people who bring me in have a P&L, a profit and loss responsibility. I won't go in otherwise. So if you think about that, I have like the way I got to doing helping redesign Colgate Europe in the transition in the Europe to into the European Common Market era was they came on a tour at Kingsford Charcoal, which is a very long time ago, and then the general manager from there went to South um, uh, to South Africa, well to all of Africa. So for me, I'm going in with a leader who says this is what we're going to do. And now I don't try and convince anybody. I don't try and as I said earlier, I don't tell them, you have to be responsible, and I don't point out what they're doing wrong. I do an education process where they do self-assessments, then I give them more education about how they can work on what they just found. They work on that, we reflect, see how they're doing, and then I bring in more. What I'm doing is teaching systems thinking using business frameworks, earnings, margins, Mm. and cash flow. You keep hearing me talk about that. But I teach it, so how do you produce cash flow, revenue growth, in a way that is responsible? I teach them how margins work in a way that you increase health and vitality of all that you touch. And I teach them how to produce earnings in a way that is sustainable through time, and you are trusted so that people don't buy and sell your stock at a a fluctuating rate. So I don't have too much trouble convincing people that they would like to have those uh, outcomes. And because I'm referred by one CEO or one general manager or, in some case, a division manager to another one around the planet, they listen when I get there. And the results that I produce, with well, they produce, I, you know, in, by using what it is I show them. I don't ever find people not doing what I'm talking about. Now, do we have some people who don't go as far? Of course. I mean, I have, when I was in South Africa working with Colgate, we had, they were so hungry because of the, you know, move out of apartheid. They went so fast, I couldn't keep up with them. (laughs) But then when I come back to the States, to the United States, it's much harder because we already think we know. So you have to move, you have to work in a different way. But no one hires me that isn't going to use it. So I can't tell you what it would look like to work with a company which doesn't take it on because I got people who are already decided they've talked to people they know that it's going to be a several years process and off we go well that sounds pretty promising we're just about up on a break and I think this may be a good time to just take a break and then uh, when we come back we'll have a the rest of the show uninterrupted so I just want to I just want to reintroduce my guest, Carol Sanford, award-winning author. We're talking about the responsible business 
and ways to reimagine sustainability and success and also some ways to really get companies involved at every level in, in becoming responsible and actually having positive effects out through every area of the business and the community and the planet. So for more information on Carol's books, you can go to www.carolsanford.com. Um, and you can also find her books on Amazon. And we will be back in a few minutes. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Inside Healthcare is the only radio program focused solely on the healthcare industry. We bring together new and experienced entrepreneurs and industry veterans from throughout the country who are changing the dynamic on how healthcare is delivered today. Join us as we ask the tough questions, explore current topics, and discuss the new partners and models in healthcare that successfully address the needs of population health across the country. Listen Mondays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and, of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you know your personal brand? You may have the idea, but do you really know how to execute it and perfect it? Join Kathy Bass, the branding lady, for an inside look at the world of branding on her show, Power Up Branding. Kathy and her guests will discuss the many facets of branding, including tips to help you rebrand or bring your brand to the next level. Power Up Branding can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get a plan. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show 
at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here with Carol Sanford. We're talking about the responsible business. And before the break, we talked a lot about some of the practices and ways to get people engaged and actually have everybody winning when you want to really make business work better and that this is leading to higher profits and more employee satisfaction and healthier communities. And so in your, I wanted to just refer to a, a part in your new book, um, the uh, entrepreneurial book, where you had an internal entrepreneur at Google. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Oh, yes. It's one of my favorite stories. In fact, one of my favorite life experiences. We're still in the middle of it. Um, one of the things that I get companies to do is create something called Promises Beyond Ableness, which means every person who is in the business from the CEO or general manager to the person who answers the phones or sits at the front desk makes a promise to improve something for a customer, a user, or uh, a, a distributor, and they do that as a part of their work life. Now, there is a company which has had a model like that for a long time, which I'm, as you just pointed out, Google, which I have been blessed to be involved in an innovation lab that is um, just going like gangbusters with a leader, Mikhail Bakker, uh, who took this idea of, you know, pick something in Google. They, uh, For the engineers, they call it 20% time. Mikel said, what I want to do is change our relationship to food on the planet. Now, mm. people say to me, why, why would Google do that? And I said, well, you remember, and if you look at the way Mikel states the mission is, the mission of Google is to make all information universally available. They're very interested in pulling knowledge in and making it possible for everyone to have access to it. Not mm-hmm. necessarily to take our knowledge and give it away, because, you know, there are lots of platforms for making sure people can sell it. But they have a strong drive that they believe the more knowledge and information is shared, the stronger and more equity we will have on the planet. So, Mikkel, working from that, said part of what I want to work on is what we do to the planet growing food, what it is that we do to human beings in the way we feed them and in the way we structure eating uh, venues, and then the way it is that we treat our healthcare system. He pulled together a hundred people from around the world who are expert in this over several years. This has been going, and working with uh, communities of practice, which are working on everything from soil, health, land, uh, health of the land, and the farmers to things that are working on the what they call farm-to-table, which is where you get food and it comes into the Google system or the other providers who are uh, part of this lab, and how they look and make decisions about what will really make people healthy. Because, you know, people, like at Google, they can eat really healthy while they're there, but then they go home and they go on the road. How do you keep people healthy there? Google mm-hmm. has made some huge commitments, including they have uh, – into the first commercial CSA, so community-sourced um, agriculture, where mm-hmm. when I used to, when I was home enough a bajillion years ago, buy <laughs> from a farm, I owned part of the farm. I owned part of its produce, not the farm itself. Well, mm-hmm. just imagine what it would be like if companies who have cafeterias like Google were to buy the, pro- the share of the farm in advance so that the farmer doesn't have to worry about it, and they agree to pay up front, 
and then they take that produce and they cook and feed inside the company. Google has done that in its California operations as a part of this innovation lab. They have pulled in also hospitals, which are buying into the next round, schools. Jamie Oliver Foundation is involved. And this is something that, I mean, Google is not funding anything radically uh, out of this or even in some ways new. It's creating the platform for the conversation and the information to be gathered and to go viral and for everybody to have it. So right now, it's just barely getting, you know, a platform so it can start sharing. But the excitement is that you have this idea of making a promise beyond what you know how to do, and Mm. then you take off as a company to do that. So Google, in this particular case, is hot on the uh, trail of transforming our relationship to food. Boy, that's so inspiring, and it's something I care deeply about. And when you first started to talk about it, I thought you might be saying that they were creating an application you could have maybe on your phone or something. Um, Are they looking into anything like that? Like I heard that there was an app or a machine you could buy where you could scan food and you could tell if it was genetically modified or had certain pesticides or herbicides on it. Have they done anything around technology, do you know? Well, this lab, there are people talking about that. I don't know mm-hmm. of anything that is out in the universe yet. Um, they, there are a, the people who are on this lab are mostly like ninety percent not Google people. There are people who are at Cornell University, who are at the head of a Swiss food innovation lab. The people, there are sets of people who are doing great things around technology. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are a variety of people, all of whom are working. I know there are people who talk about that. I don't know whether any of it is in the field yet but I know that it's the kind of thing that's being talked about a lot yeah because it seems like it would empower people and also it's it's heartening to me to hear about a big company taking this on because as individual consumers it's hard to fight you know Whole Foods is is doing a part by becoming a large store that makes healthy food available. But like you said, sometimes when I'm in an airport, I just think if they could just have one place that had some organic food or... I know, know. I know. Well, and that's the other thing that this particular project is working on, the commercial CSA, is figuring out how to scale organic. Because right Mm -hmm. now, organic tends to be quite small. You know, I mean, it Mm -hmm. may be a few hundred acres, but it can't really scale in the sense that we're used to, so it's hard to have it go mainstream, as they say, but that is one of the objectives of this particular uh, project with the farms, which are in California on the Pescadero Coast, is to figure out how to scale it so you could really have the potential. And it's not so much that it's Google's project, it's it's them creating the conversation where people Mm -hmm. can figure out how to do those things. And that's what's exciting about a big company, they have the platform. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, well, there's more, more, a great deal more of that story. I interviewed Mikel, uh, who is from Holland, which is why it's Mikel and not Michael, uh, mm-hmm. and how he grew up. All of the stories in this new book about the entrepreneurs, their internal and external entrepreneurs, how they grew up and how they saw the world in order to take on changing a whole industry and changing an entire social, social system or a cultural paradigm or the kind of governance we were talking about. So that's why I wrote this book is to really create – people's hope, you know, like as you say, us as individuals, but how even a small business or a larger business, either one, can make huge change if they know how to do it. 
Yeah, and I have an interview actually from the end of last year. Of, of, I interviewed Rian Eisler, who has a whole program around how to create a caring economy. Right. And sh- she points out a lot of the Scandinavian countries that are doing this right. And and I think they probably follow a lot of these principles naturally. So it's not a surprise that this guy's from Holland. Right. Have you, well, and I know have Leanne, you, she's, she's an extraordinary human being. And it is true that I, I, I teach and work a lot in Scandinavia, in Stockholm and in Denmark, and I'll be back in Holland again in um, February. And it's very easy when I'm there to have these kinds of conversations, but they're also have small scale versions and we you know it's like it's not going to change the whole planet so I, I i keep wanting more of the big companies here and actually the exciting thing is i see people moving in this direction and some of them are doing it through the door of separate programs and philanthropy but i think as you said earlier with the millennials coming up and the climate change questions you know that we're going to have we i live in edmonds where i had half of my deck blown over last night we had a landslide down on the train track all because of the heavy winds and rains last night. That's going to change how we get things to happen. Yeah, really. That's <laughs> sadly the way it may yeah, have, to, yeah. have to happen. Well, so you you offer fundamentally different methods of working that have been tested and proven successful on multiple continents and industries. Um, and you challenge a lot of the myths that are sort of embedded in business, what are some of those myths and and why do you challenge them? Well, to me, one of the biggest arenas of myths is something you care a lot about is how we think you motivate human beings. And as a result of the myth that you motivate human beings by incentives, we undermine personal agency. So let me give you a little background about that. But that's the myth, that you motivate people by external factors. We got to that uh, idea because in the 20s, 1920s, a man named John um, Watson, I'm doing this wrong, it's not Watson, I'll think of it again in a minute, founded uh, behavioral um, psychology. And what he did is he went to the big magnets of industry and he said, you've got this industrial revolution, you've got all these people working for you, you have a lot of trouble controlling them. If you'll give me a lab, I can show you how to control them. So they gave him many, many millions of dollars to go to Yale and set up a, a school. And there what he did is he studied rats running around in mazes and what it meant to give them cheese and to control and get them to go a different direction. Then he translated all that out into human psychology as though it was directly relatable. Now, if you manage a group of rats, then everything you lo- you learned from he and then his student, B.F. Skinner, you will use incentives, i.e. cheese, at the end of the scale, or money, or rewards and recognition. I take all of those out of the companies I'm in because they undermine one of the most important things about human beings, which is internal locus of control and personal agency. So internal locus of control is that sense that I am responsible for the ups and the downs of my life and for what I produce. No excuses, no blame, uh, no passing the buck. We undermine that every time we create a 360-degree feedback, a reward and recognition, everything that comes from outside. And because we were told that by the behavioral psychology school, we think there's no other way. So the kind of things I do with Promises Beyond Ableness 
teaching people reflection, teaching them to work in a way that they're, they're doing self-guidance and working with communities of people produces the kind of results I'm talking about. So if you want to have a business produces the kind of 30 to 35 to 60 percent increase in revenues every year and the kind of market share that we were talking about in margins which can double or triple in your industry you've got to change how you work with people because otherwise you're having to change what they work on all the time and then sent them to do that here go down this part of the maze so the biggest myths are all around i have a program i used to run called the 30 toxic myths for making your company succeed most of them were a big part of them are around human management. There are some around strategy uh, and some around leadership, but the biggest number are how we manage people because we think we're responsible for motivating them. Boy, that is so powerful because I even have recent guests that talk about the importance of recognition and you're just completely reversing it. So I I have a few questions and a a comment first, which is that our schools do this as well. So it's like, you know, the, the, kind of, the people in charge, variability is something that is threatening to some systems. I, I think when you, the thing that's going on now with complexity and the pace of change is that we need systems to be more agile. And for that, we need self-responsibility. But this is a major shift and we're yeah. not... We're not schooling people unless they go to private schools, perhaps. Um, no, but I have in. A, private schools do the same thing. Well... Probably, yeah. I mean, there. I think there are certain styles of school, maybe like Waldorf and Montessori, that are maybe True. better. True. But yeah, I, I'm sure a lot of the private schools are the same. Uh, but one. So when you were talking about um, the early behavioral psychology, I wonder if you think maybe the our brains are changing in general. Like maybe 40, 50 years ago, that was the way people had to work, but now our brains can handle complexity more and that the younger people have that more naturally? Do you think there's any possibility of that? I I think we've always been able to do this. I mean, you think about even what cavemen did to figure out how to survive in radically changing climates. Our brains don't change that fast. We have undermined it for quite a while. I think uh, when I look at the companies I go in, I feel like I am undoing some of what the schools did and even parenting because the behavioral Mm -hmm. psychology teaching started in business, then went down to education, and then went into parenting. And so I walk into people's homes and I see gold stars, you know, for their kids. Instead of saying, you know, how will you know when you're successful? When will you feel excited about what you did? Mm -hmm. And then you come back and you say, how did you feel about that? How are you going to work on it next time? What did you learn? That's a process of building internal orchestra control and building, uh, and the other thing you can add to it is what I call external considering, which is teaching them to think about the effects. So you not only say, what did you learn and what did you get out of that, but you say, what do you think you produced? What difference did it make for someone else? If you're having that conversation with a child at home and then in school, then by the time they get to work, they're constantly thinking about customers, earth, communities, uh, even investors much better because they can think about the external and they're asking the question about how they're responsible. I don't think that has anything to do with brain change. I think it has to do Mm -hmm. with just a bunch of misunderstandings and being sold a bill of goods for about 50 years about how humans work that is really how rats work and not how humans work, we've always been able to deal with complexity. 
Well, your book should actually be in the psychology section. Yeah, a lot better people tell me that. And I am a psychologist. I was trained one, I mean, I have master's degrees in business and urban planning and undergraduate degrees in economics and then in psychology too. So I've always been interested in the broad spectrums of things and how they interface. And I did use all of my psychology uh, education to help me design work systems that are incredibly different. I years ago was saying what Daniel Pink has been saying in the last 10 years about motivation, and he's got one thing wrong. He says, still do feedback. Feedback drives exactly the same problems that reward and recognition does, and it doesn't work. So understanding what's behind it, understanding the psychology behind this and how humans work when they're most whole and complete is critical to helping a business become successful and for humans' lives to be meaningful. So have you gone into a company that maybe got you as a referral, saw the results you've been having with other companies, and then you explain what they have to do and they just... I mean, I kind of asked a variation of this question earlier, but it's hard for me to believe that that everybody just says, oh, yes, yeah, we're going to completely change. I mean, do they really just do it or is there a lot of work... So With the managers, things. I guess. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things. One is I make sure they know what they're getting into before they get in. And they have heard a lot from the other CEO who refers me. The way I work is not telling people. I mean, I'm saying to you the outcome, but I do this all by education. So I introduce, and my clients I work with over three to eight years. I work with Chad Holliday, uh, who wrote the forward to my last book, The Responsible Business, from the time he was in DuPont as a maintenance manager until he was chairman, CEO, and president. So I have long-term relationships with these folks, and all of it is about educating and letting them figure it out. So I put up a set of what I call frameworks. They're thinking frameworks. And I say, all right, here are the options of ways to think about it. So if I said to you, um, and I, I often do stories of, with children and families because it becomes obvious there. I said, if, so this is a way I would help them see strategy. If I said to your child, um, you know, the hottest place you can go make a lot of money is this industry. You should go to school there. You should track that route and you should just follow it and make lots of money. Or I could say to your child and develop them and say, who are you? What do you care about? What is unique about you? Where do you want to be in the world? What do you want to produce? And of course, you don't do that at two or three years old, but, you know, 10 or 11. Which one mm-hmm. would you want to have your child being driven by? But we do the same thing with people inside of companies. We don't help them see the same kind of understanding about who they are, and we don't do it at the strategic level. One of the things that my education process, rather than telling them what to do, is... Um, ask them, what is really unique about you as a business? And I do something called essence discovery, just like you would with a child, and say, mm-hmm. now take that and run with it. So I'm not saying don't do all of these myths. I say I just have them reflect on it. I give them some ideas. And I say, now what do you think? So mm-hmm. it's, it's not me. There's, I don't create something so that they're restraining me and say I won't do that. I educate them about all the ways they could think about it, and then they choose, which is what I wish were happening in schools mm-hmm. and parenting. <laughs> and I think you'd probably get a lot of support from teachers as well, that they know that this is a better way to learn, but they oh, just yeah. are so constrained. Yeah, well, so. for sure. And. I, I do work a lot in universities. In fact, I have 
two more books, and I have one that I'm not working on actively, but I outlined a long time ago, was The Responsible Educator. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one that's going to be out is The Responsible Human, about how we have to live a responsible life and, you know, how you work on you to overcome racism and the challenges that you have so you can make a difference. But I do believe educators do know a lot of this, um, like in their heart. It's why they were drawn to education. Yes, yes, because they want to bring out the best in kids. And and then when they get in there, it's pretty tough to do oh, for yeah, many, many yeah. reasons. Well, and they, they have a lot of creative ideas about what they can do, and they find out they have no time, you know, and, and they don't make any money, uh, and they use their own money to buy supplies. I mean, we've got the system so upside down, it's horrific. Well, yeah, and I have my theories about why that doesn't get <laughs> improved as quickly as it could, but it's just such great news to know that organizations are creating healthy spaces for people to thrive and make money. And then um, I imagine a lot of them uh, could take those skills and, and take take them to a start start their own business if they wanted to, I mean, it sounds like a lot of people are quite happy working for companies that operate this way. But it just, they, I heard a statistic about how a lot of the large companies are, are not going to be able to survive in the long run and that we're going to have a lot more smaller companies that can be more agile and innovative. And it, it just seems like th- these practices or this approach is a, uh, is a really strong way to do that. Um, well, so I wanted to, we've talked a little bit about your entrepreneurship ideas. And um, so as you grow a business, how do you keep innovation alive? Hmm. Um <clears throat> I think we are, as human beings, have a, a, a tendency to want to be innovative. You think about a child and how they every day have got another bright idea or another question, another curiosity. And the reason for that is that we, with children, or, you know, good majority of children, not true for all, we give them a lot of space to go play with the idea, you know, to put on your Superman or Wonder Woman suit and, you know, go out and save the world. But when we get them inside of a business, we do not not create ways except through a suggestion box. And suggestion boxes tend to be deadly. So do brainstorming ideas that all get up on a wall. <clears throat> because the thing that we don't do is connect individuals to the innovation. The way I keep innovation alive is I have inside of a company, and I'll give you a Colgate Palmolive example in Europe, we would take everybody who was in a manufacturing facility, the marketing business, the finance, and create cross-functional teams that were responsible for a distributor because Colgate sells through distributors. So you had a whole team which were wrapped around Carrefour, which is like their Walmart. Then you'd Mm -hmm. have other teams that were wrapped around particular mom-and-pop grocery stores, which are on the corners all over Europe. And you ask the people to meet regularly, and individuals come up with ideas which they carry through on. Now, they have to sell them, get them vetted, raise the funds, um, and get something to really happen with them. But the innovation comes from us seeing how we could make a difference in another person's lives. 
It's one of the reasons Google and um, a bit Apple, I worked with Apple when they were brand new, and I was teaching at San Jose State, and I had a lot of MBA students who were coming through there. But if you don't connect people individually and then let them go go make a difference, then they won't do it. So one of the things Montessori schools teach, and Larry Page and Sergey Brin both went through Montessori schools, they learned <laughs> that you come up with an idea, and then you're responsible for doing it, but you're also responsible for the impact it has on everybody that it affects. They've done exactly the same thing when they came to Google. They instilled this idea of you innovate based on your experience with our technologies, your friends, the people you talk to as customers. You continue to innovate. Now, the risk they have right now is that they've created Google X, which is a whole separate facility doing really far out. You know, they're the ones that came up with Google Glass and the -hmm. idea of the parachutes, which are, excuse me, hot air balloons, which can move things across the planet. So you you have to make sure you don't let innovation, just like you don't let sustainability, become some one group's program. You have to keep every person, here's the principle, every person in the organization tied externally to real users, customers, or consumers, and have responsibility for delivering something that improves their lives. Wow. That's so powerful. Yeah. And takes a little it, work to structure it, but it's not impossible. It's actually fairly easy once you understand the, the flow. Yeah, um, and that really does match the system idea that you're, you're taking it to the end user, basically. So mm-hmm. when you were, talk, you were talking about these cross-functional teams, um, in an earlier example in Europe, did, um, did you say that the, they would actually get people from the end user to be part of the team? Well, they did in a few cases. The what they were doing is the team. So, you, so let's let's think about just toothpaste, for example. You would have people who were manufacturing toothpaste, who were packing toothpaste, who were designing, who were in R and D, and then a person who was out of finance. All of whom met regularly to serve a particular customer. Now, they would be out in the field with them. So, if you were wrapped around the mom and pop grocery stores, one of the things that they, one of the teams that was working with. <coughs> excuse me, a whole part of France, we're looking at what was unique about the mom-and-pop grocery stores in France. And, you know, the thing was they have these little packages of stuff that they can only have one or two on a shelf, and they didn't have a way to reorder because it was too expensive to keep track of all that. Well, those teams set up a mechanism where the scanning of the delivery could keep track of what they had on the shelf so it didn't have to cost them money. Whose toothpaste do you think they carried (laughs) as a result of people innovating how to take care of them? So it's they, they did talk to them, but more they watched them. They looked at what they needed. They didn't do surveys. They went out and said, what is their life like, and how do we as a team, and rotating members would go. Even people who were uh, running toothpaste lines would go out. We did the same thing in South Africa. We changed how we worked in townships in Alexandra and, uh, and Soweto, and we had detergent tower operators who were helping figure out how to do those things. So it's getting every individual linked directly to the lives of the people who are impacted by their company. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, believe it or not, we're out of time. It's just wow. really hard to believe, I know. Um, but I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. And I hope you'll come back and visit me again. I'd love to. Well, thank you. 
And so I hope people tune- come find me. I love to have conversations with people, as you can tell. So Yes. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed it. So just uh, as a follow-up, tune in next week. My guest will be Karen Hurt, and we'll be discussing growing inspired leaders. So for a full description of next week's and up- other upcoming shows, as well as access to all past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantum businessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.